Sorry, it took me a little while to get up here. As you can see, I've got a handheld microphone, handheld microphone, which causes me great confusion. I've got glasses, microphone. I've got like too many things I'm juggling now. Um, just getting older, I guess. And my mic broke. So, um, I am Dave McMurray. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you yet, I would love to meet you. Uh, also, want to just say thank you, not only to Keelan and the worship team. Thank you guys for leading us. That was really awesome. Really excited that the Glockenspiel has been broken out, singing some Christmas songs. Um, I also want to thank Elise for installing mountains in our church. So, pretty excited about that. Actually, she did she did all the decorating. So, thank you for doing all of that. Um, but yeah, it's exciting. So, if you're new to Grace Bible Church, one thing that we like to do is try to kind of jump on this train of traditional Christmas practice. Sometimes it's referred to as Advent. So, we've got Advent devotionals in the back. And what we're going to do is we're going to focus on a different uh, theme each week. So, Advent, literally the word means the arrival of an important person, a notable event. So, what we're saying when we use the word Advent is we're celebrating the arrival of Jesus. Jesus showed up on the scene, right? So, that's what Christmas is. And the traditional practice of celebrating Advent is kind of to draw it out, right? So we're trying to kind of spread it out and take as much time as possible, preparing our hearts to celebrate Jesus, the incarnation that God would take on flesh and be born among us as a little baby. It's just an awesome, beautiful story and a wonderful thing that's changed everything in human history. So we're celebrating that together, and we're going to focus on, guess which, which theme we're focusing on this week? Can you tell? So we, got, we added some extra lights here. Yes, hope. We're focusing on hope. We got those lit up so that you'll know where we are so you don't get lost. Uh, this whole month, and as we celebrate on Christmas Eve, we're calling it Christmas in Colleen. Um, and just to define, I know some of you don't technically live in the Colleen zip code or codes, right? Like I live in Harker Heights. Some of you live in like Copper's Cove, Fort Hood on post. You know, we're spread out all over, uh, but we're just trying to kind of focus our minds and say, God has called us to this place to this time, and it's a reflection of what Jesus did in being born among us. It's one of the most repeated promises in Scripture that we have a God who would be the God who is in our midst. We just sang the song Emmanuel that literally means God with us. That is the fulfillment that we celebrate at Christmas time. that God came and lived among us. He didn't, he didn't wait for us to work our way up to him, right? but he came down to us. And that's the big celebration that we celebrate at Christmas time. Today, we're focusing on the concept of hope, hope in Colleen. So we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 11. This is a beautiful and really poetic prophecy that we're going to look at in Isaiah chapter 11. So you can turn there if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, it's on page 575 in the Black Bible. So you can grab one of those Black Bibles and open it up to page 575. We're going to look at Isaiah 11 that promises that even though Israel in this context has been punished for disobeying God, that they will be restored and that their hero is going to come. We know that hero is Jesus. The imagery that's used reminds me of the imagery that I saw in a movie years ago. How many of you have seen the movie Wall-E? Have you seen that, Wall-E? Okay, yeah. So Wall-E takes place in a dystopian future, right? What that means is it's this future where everything's just totally obliterated. We've just trashed the earth in this uh, fiction work, and humans are now cruising around on spaceships because the earth has just kind of been utterly destroyed and trashed. But they left robots to clean up the trash. And the robot's job is to keep cleaning up the trash until life can blossom again. 
And so there's this beautiful symbol of renewal in this movie in Wally, and that's this one little sprout, this one little shoot of new life, this little plant that begins to grow. And it's the symbol that the earth is going to be renewed. Now, our hope is that the earth will be renewed through this shoot that's going to be described in our poetry, which is Christ himself. So the prophecy we're going to read is going to tell us that this shoot is coming from a certain tribe. It's going to look like a dead stump, but the shoot of new life is going to spring forth. And the fulfillment that we've all been waiting for is coming. That's the promise of Isaiah chapter 11. So let's read Isaiah chapter 11, starting in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. All right, I'm going to pray and ask God to sink this into our hearts, this great Christmas hope, this hope that they were looking forward to being fulfilled. Now we can look back on the first Christmas and say it was fulfilled even while we long and hope for more, right? We're living in the time between the times. The battle has begun. Jesus has uh, operated the final death blow against the devil. He's defeated sin and death. And yet it's our job living in the time between the times to continue to spread that hope, continue to spread that good news as we await his return. Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at it in more detail. God, we thank you that you love us. And Lord, you know the gloom and doom and destruction and pain that we live in right now. I know there are different struggles that everybody here is, is dealing with right now, uh, different heartaches, different hardships that make it hard to hope. And so, God, help us to to get a new vision of you and what you're doing. Help us to see once again that we can have hope because of the renewal that you are bringing through your son, Jesus. Give us eyes to see, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So some of you, you may be like me. You may be in a really good mood because you just came off of a holiday, right? Like, I'm feeling pretty good right now. Last week, you know, I wasn't feeling as happy, but this week I feel really happy. I slept in a couple of days. I ate a lot, got to hang out with my family. My kids were in town. Just had a really good time, right? But the general default position for the world we live in is it's a world of decay, right? It's a world of brokenness and death and pain. And so all of us deal with that at some level. You might be dealing with difficulties in your job. You might be dealing with difficulties physically. You might be sick, or a loved one that you care for is sick. We, we all deal with gloom and doom and difficulty in different ways. Actually, I was uh, talking to Chris Webster, our, our worship pastor, does a lot of our graphics, and his son and, and he were discussing this whole idea of hope, and they were talking about how hope only makes sense if you understand that you're living with or struggling with something bad right now, right? 
And so we have to have eyes to see that. They were joking, and his son came up with this idea that our theme should be doom, right? Doom and clean, right? We should have like a week of doom, and then we should move on to hope, right? So my job is to kind of back you up and help you understand the, the doom and gloom that the Israelites were facing in Isaiah chapter 11. So what had happened is, in this time in their history, they had been disobedient to God. They had, just like you and I often do, trusted in themselves rejected God's teachings, not trusted in him and, done, and did what he said, but instead they kind of went off and did their own thing. And in their disobedience and continual disobedience, God finally judged them. He scattered them. He sent the Assyrian empire to judge and scatter them, and that's kind of where they are right now. And then throughout the book of Isaiah, we see Isaiah predicting and speaking to the even further judgment that would come through the Babylonian empire. So the people of God had been scattered, and they had these tribes that we've talked about, and these tribes were the ones that were promised that they would bless the whole world, right? Remember, if you were with us in the Genesis series, we saw this blessing given to Abraham. Through you, you're going to bless the whole world. And then we saw in our final week this blessing given to Judah, and the idea was that through Judah, this blessing would come, this blessing of kingship would come, a true king, a great king, and in that blessing in Genesis chapter 49. is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Do you remember that? Well, later on in their history, this begins to come to fruition. Kind of partially, it comes true through King David and King Solomon. They have these great kingdoms, and God works in mighty ways through David and Solomon, but we know they're not quite the true king we're waiting for, right? And so these guys are pictures of what is to come, but they're not the ultimate king. And so that's kind of where we pick up here in Isaiah 11. They knew what it was to have a good king that loved God, but those good kings even failed God and they drifted from God. And now the people of Israel have been judged. And that takes us to the place where there is now a stump of Judah. This tribe has now become a stump. It's referred to as Jesse. Do you all know who Jesse was? Jesse was the father of King David, right? So I have to kind of translate. There's a lot of tribal language and names from the scripture. If you don't know the story, it doesn't make sense. But there's this promise there's going to be an ultimate perfect king coming from the tribe of Judah. And that begins through to be narrowed through the tribe of Jesse, through King David, through King Solomon, right? They're all in line of Judah. And so that's what's being talked about in our text when it says there's this stump of Jesse. It's talking about that family line, that family line of kings. It's now a chopped down stump. And so a lot of you may be able to relate to that, right? Something you had hoped in, something you thought would bring hope, has actually been destroyed. And so God speaks to you in your hopelessness and says, hope again, I'm going to restore this stump. A shoot is going to grow forth out of it. And as we look at this prophetic poetry, we're going to see three ways that hope is manifest in our world. Three ways that hope is manifest locally as we talk about hope and clean. The first way is that we're going to see hope leads well. Hope leads well. He's going to talk about this great leader, this great king that's going to lead righteously, right? And so we are the body of Christ. We should also lead well. So the hope we're hoping in, this great king to come, Jesus, he leads well, we should lead well. Then we're going to see also that this hope reshapes creation. We're all longing for the world we live in to no longer have hurricanes and tornadoes and disasters and cancer and sickness, right? We're longing for the restoring and reshaping of creation. And then finally, we're going to see that this hope gathers every tribe. It's not just for my people. It's not just for your people. It's for all the peoples. And that's where this passage is going to end. So first of all, let's look at this idea 
that hope leads well. And so again, my, my concept here, whoops, skip past the doom. My concept here is that what we see in Christ is what we should be living out in the world. Does that make sense? Do you follow? The New Testament continually says we are the body of Christ. He's the head, we're the body, so we are to live out, we are to manifest God's presence in this world. It's repeated all through the New Testament. And so we see that this great king is going to lead well, so we should also lead well. That's part of what it means to manifest the hope that we have in Jesus in our city and neighborhood. So again in verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So I already explained that a little bit. That's the big idea. This shoot of hope is going to come forth out of deadness. So whatever your situation of deadness, you can look forward to a God that can bring life out of deadness. That's the kind of God we serve. He's the kind of God that takes this completely dead stump, this abandoned people of God, and he says, we're going to bring forth new life. The day is coming. Uh, another way that this is symbolized in Christmas in the Western world, or the, I guess, Northern Hemisphere, is that we celebrate Christmas in the winter. And part of the symbolism of why we do that is because it's the darkest time of year, right? And so in the winter and in the darkness, in the time when the days are shorter and there's less sunlight, what we're saying is that God broke in, right? That's when we celebrate. Man, God broke into the darkness. And so people of Israel were longing for this fulfillment to come, and that's when Jesus was born. Now we live between the times where he has come. He took our sins upon the cross. He rose from the dead. He's reconciled us to the Father. Our relationship is restored, but we're still longing for the rest of this fulfillment to take place. So this shoot is going to come. He's going to come from the stump of Jesse, David's father, the tribe of Judah. All of that goes together. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and this is what he looks like. Look at verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This is going to be a man who really has the Spirit. God is with him. It says the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is going to be someone who really loves God. This is what a leader is supposed to look like, right? We've all seen bad leadership. This is true leadership here. He goes on to say in verse 3, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He delights in the Lord. Someone who loves God more than he loves himself. That's the definition of servant leadership. As you delight so much in God that that frees you to not fight and scrap for your own priorities. What if you and I were so free of our own priorities and our own worries that we were able to actually serve others in love? Well, that's what Jesus did. And the more we begin to trust Jesus, the more that begins to manifest in our life. And that then is true leadership. That's what Jesus displayed, right, when he washed his disciples' feet. It's like, this is what it looks like to to lead. It's to serve. The one of you that wants to be the greatest, you should be the servant of all. Jesus said that again and again. He goes on and he says, He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. What does that mean? Is it bad to use your eyes and use your ears to function in your daily life? Um, I don't think he's saying it's wrong to use your eyes and ears. He's saying human beings in our limited capacity rely completely on our eyes and ears. So what he's going to contrast is there's one guy that just uses his eyes and his ears, and what does that result in? We just see the surface of things. But this leader, and we, if we trust Jesus, we will rely on the Spirit of the Lord. 
we will rely on his wisdom. We'll rely on supernatural wisdom that will enable us to see beyond just the surface of the things. Remember how God always talks about judging the heart and not the outward appearance. That's the kind of leader that we have in Jesus, this true shoot of Jesse, this new life that comes out of this dead stump of Israel. And so he's saying, are you going to just judge things on the surface? Are you going to trust God and judge more deeply? How are, how are you going to judge? We have to be extra careful with this, right, because of the era we live in. Um, we live in the modern era, which is built largely on the scientific method. Now, as Christians, we need to be really careful to say, scientific method's great, solves a lot of the world's problems, we're pro-science, right? But we have to recognize that in the swing of, of the pendulum of worldviews, Christianity created the scientific method, and then now the scientific method has kind of run away and said, we don't need God. All we need is the scientific method. And with the, th- the scientific method, which essentially is use your eyes and your ears to measure things and observe things, with that, we can solve all the world's problems. We can bring in the new world with just the scientific method. And that's what we have to guard against, right? We have to say, you know what? Uh, in the ancient Greek mythology, that would be called hubris. That's men thinking they can defeat the gods on their own strength, Right? So the scientific method is a great tool in our tool belt, but it's not everything. And in our current day and age, it's kind of becoming a religion in and of itself. So we don't want to go to the other extreme of a kind of religious fundamentalism that's scared of science, but we also have to just recognize kind of the air we breathe, the world we've been raised in, is a world that says, no, no, don't, don't pay attention to spiritual things. Don't pay attention to God. Don't pay attention to this beautiful creation that demands that there's a creator just pay attention to your eyes and ears, what you can measure, what you can taste, touch, and smell. So we just have to recognize we're in a culture that pushes against this. But those who would really lead well would be those who don't just rule with their eyes and ears, but with righteousness, it says in verse 4, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. That's the scary part, right? Uh, Often, We see the view of Jesus as the merciful, forgiving one, and that's who he is. And that's primarily how he's revealed himself through the cross, through his first coming. But we're told that he's going to return and judge the wicked. Revelation has this vision of Jesus coming back on a horse as a judge, right? And this judgment coming out of his mouth. He speaks, and it is done. He he is going to judge the wicked. So we don't want to kind of become the kinds of Christians that are always screaming judgment all the time, but... We also want to make sure we understand that that that's a part of the deal, right? God hates evil. And it's either going to be judged on Christ and we're forgiven, or it's going to be judged directly and we're going to be cast out. There's really two ways that's going to be dealt with. And so our job is to say, man, there's there's good news. Jesus took the judgment for you. Receive the, the mercy. Receive the grace. He's opening up the door to you, this great judge that is to come. Finally, it ends with verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And this is reflected in the New Testament in 1 Thessalonians 5 and Ephesians chapter 6. Have y'all ever heard of the armor of God? It's a famous passage in Ephesians chapter 6, and then there's also a parallel to that in 1 Thessalonians 5. So what Paul says is as a believer, by faith, every morning, you have to choose to not put on your identity, but to set your identity aside and put on Jesus' identity. And when you put on that 
armor of God, so to speak, Paul is saying, we look like this. Paul's quoting this section. He's referring to this section. And we will look like Jesus, who leads well. See, we'll care for the poor. We'll care for the weak. We'll serve others. We'll judge righteously. We'll do the right thing when we have our identity in Christ settled. But when we're just trying to do it on our own strength, when we're just trying to judge with our own eyes and with our own ears and by our own power, the Bible often calls this judging things or or doing life by the power of our flesh. When we live according to the power of our flesh, we're not going to be righteous. So let me back up and and frame Isaiah for you a little bit because they're being judged for not being righteous, right? And I want to summarize for you one of the things that they did is in uh, chapter 1 of Isaiah, Isaiah condemns them for being hypocrites, for being people who put on religion but don't actually love and serve others. And so we've got to ask ourselves, is, is that who I am? Or am I, am I putting on Christ, recognizing that I have failed in myself, that I need his forgiveness, I need his love, I'm putting on that new identity, and then I'm beginning to, to change my priorities so that I can serve others in love, that I can live out this righteousness, that that's what I'm wearing. Jesus also condemned hypocrisy in religious people in his day. Remember, there are a lot of different analogies he used um, he would talk about how religious people would care a lot about tithing spices, but they didn't actually care about justice and mercy, right? Like they kind of got their priorities mixed up. They liked to look religious, but they didn't actually like to love God and love other people. And so if we're going to be the kinds of people that lead well, like Jesus leads well, we have to care about the right things. I have a picture here of whitewashed tombs. This is a, an image that Jesus used a lot for religious hypocrisy, the kind of things that Isaiah also condemned people for in Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah chapter 11, God says, I hate your worship services. They disgust me because you're pretending to worship me, but you're not really loving and serving other people. Jesus says that if you're faking religion and you're just doing religion to look good in front of other people, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You look pretty on the outside, but you're full of dead bones. And so when we talk about leading well, again, it's helpful to think about the context of how Israel led poorly. And so we also, there's the parallel, right? God's people, Israel in the Old Testament, led badly. We as God's people in the 21st century, how are we going to lead well? Well, here we have this picture of someone who delights in the Lord. Again, the more you, you put on the identity of Christ, the more you delight in the Lord, the more you're going to be able to be set free to be a servant leader to those around you. Who are the people that God has put in your circle of influence? Who are the people that God is calling you to lead? Are you using the influence God has given you to serve them, to love them, to lead them towards righteousness, to care for the weak, to care for the poor, to care for those that need your help, to help those in your circle? As we do that, we're going to manifest this vision of the servant leadership, of this shoot who brings new life in the midst of the pain and the rebellion and the exile that's taking place among God's people in the Old Testament. The next thing that we want to look at is the idea that hope reshapes creation. This is kind of um, some of the really weird images, uh, probably stuff you've heard before, but it's really fantastical, right? It's Uh, In some ways, the least manifest in the here and now and the most poetic kind of 
fantastical language of what we look forward to, like the stuff that hasn't happened yet. Theological term is already, not yet. The kingdom is fulfilled already in Jesus defeating sin on the cross and rising from the dead. But the kingdom is not yet in the sense that the Romans 8 promise of, of all things being made right, you know, we're still groaning for that. The Revelations 20 and 21 picture of every tear being wiped away, no more disease, no more sickness, right? We're still longing for that that is not yet. So that's what we're going to look at here in verses 6 through 9. Look at verse 6. It says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How fully do the waters cover the sea? really fully, right? Like, I wasn't looking for a particular word, but it's this is absolute sense, right? And that's the degree to which people will know God. That's the future that we're looking forward to. This absolute knowledge, this full, this deep knowledge as the waters cover the sea. And then the other pictures he gives are these kind of fantastical visions of things that normally kill and eat each other getting along well. And so it's hard to know exactly how this is all going to be fulfilled, right? Because this is poetry, and we read poetry differently than we would read, like, history, right? There's some books where it's obvious it's a history story of this is what happened, and that's what happened. And then some of these poetic images, we know that he's talking about a main point. Now, heaven, there might be, like, parades of babies leading lions and, you know, goats. and so You know, I don't know. Like, that might really happen. I, I don't want to say it's not. But the main idea here is a restored creation, right? The main idea is you don't have to be afraid. That's what we look forward to. You know that feeling where you're like looking over your shoulder because a lion's about to eat you? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, I I need to be more metaphorical, right? Because we don't have lions in our culture. So like you're looking over your shoulder because you know that boss is going to get you. Or or you're looking over your shoulder because you know that family member that's betrayed you before is going to betray you again. Or you're, you're looking over your shoulder because you know cancer is coming. You've seen it ravage people that you love. You've seen it ravage your own body. We look forward to a world where we don't have to look over our shoulder anymore. We don't have to watch out for those things killing us and eating us that we've been worried about our whole lives. That's the future we're looking forward to. And Paul describes this in Romans 8, and he says, We all together long for that day to come, and we trust that it will. But our hope will be fulfilled as this shoot of Jesse, this lion of the tribe of Judah, finally restores all of creation. So how do we apply this? Because this seems like way out there, out of our reach, right? How do we live out this fantastical future that we can't make it happen on our own? Well, Jesus says, pray, right? In the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6.10, pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, we are the body of Christ, and I can't make babies play with cobras, right? Like, I can't, I can't do all of that. I can't make lions eat grass, but I can do my little part, right? We just saw Frozen 2. Anybody see Frozen 2? They use this phrase in Frozen 2 that I really like. I've used it in the past. It's like, do the next right thing. 
you know, don't get overwhelmed. Like, you can't restore all of creation, okay? Just to break it to you, you can't do it. But what's that next thing you can do? How can you be the manifest presence of Jesus in your workplace? How can you begin to restore this sense of peace that people don't have to look over their shoulder worried that you're going to kill them and eat them, right? (laughs) To say it in extreme ways. How can you bring that kind of peace and love and harmony to your workplace, to your neighborhood, to your spouse, right? Sometimes we're hardest on our spouses. Sometimes we judge the people we love the most harshly. How can you be the kind of person that says, man, I'm, lo- I'm safe with the God of the universe, and boy, I don't deserve to be. I deserve to be killed and eaten. He's shown me grace. So I'm going to show grace to you, and I'm going to show grace to you. Who- who's the person next to you? Who's the next in line? What's the next right thing you need to do to, to be the manifestation of Christ in this world, restoring creation? A famous painter that's painted this scene again and again is named Edward Hicks. This is early American painting. It's kind of weird, stylized painting, you know, kind of symbolic. But he's got the wild animals getting along with the babies, right? He's got the things that want to eat each other, not eating each other. And it was interesting, he painted in a scene from his day and time. So it's kind of hard to see, but in the background, secondary to the future hope of a completely restored creation, in the background... He has a peace treaty being signed between two warring nations. And he says, that's the manifestation of that in the here and now. Now, don't study history too closely because I'm sure they uh, went back on that treaty or something. But what's the next step? What's the next step you have of manifesting that kind of peace? What can you do, right? You can't change the whole world, but you can change one person. You can show love to one more person. You can show peace to one more person. You can show peace to one more person after that. You can manifest this reshaping of creation that our king is accomplishing in the here and now. So when we talk about the kingdom in the New Testament, we say the kingdom is ultimately present in the king, and we pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, and that's a process, but he wants you and me to be a part of the process right? The more you obey Jesus, the more you trust him and love those around you, the more his kingdom is manifest in the here and now. Now, and Christians disagree over the like timeline and sequences of how is it all going to be finished up, right? Some people say eventually Jesus will come back, he'll snap his fingers and it's all there, or he'll come back seven years and then that's terrible. And then there's a thousand years and it's awesome. You know, I mean, there's a lot of different variations of different Christians debate, but what do we all agree on? We all agree that that's where we're headed, And we all agree that it's our job to take the next step to bring a little bit more of it here and now. That's who we are. We are the people that manifest his goodness, his peace in the present. Traditionally, this has looked like Christians are the ones that did radical things like building hospitals. Something we take take for granted now, right? A lot of you are medical professionals. Well, that whole concept was invented by Christians. Christians also did this crazy thing called schools, where they're like, hey, let's educate our children. You take that for granted. You think that's like an invention of the modern era, right? No, Christians invented that. Orphanages, caring for orphans and foster kids. Christians invented that. So those are just a few of the ways that we do that. And you guys do it in all kinds of ways in your everyday life. You bring the peace of Christ to, to those around you. Remember, it's not your job to change the entire universe. Jesus will do that. He says, I want you to change what you can right around you.
take the next steps that you can take. All right, finally, we'll end with this concept that hope gathers every tribe. Hope gathers every tribe. And so take this uh, idea that no longer the lions are going to be eating the sheep anymore, right? But now uh, the creatures of creation are going to be getting along. Well, that can be kind of transformed into this picture that now the nations of men will be getting along. There's this new unity that humanity can have. And again, we see this thousands of years later being manifest among us. Here we are gathered in this room, maybe 20, maybe 50, I don't know, different tribes, different nations are represented right here in this room. And we're unified, not in the fact that we grew up in the same school or had the same Christmas traditions as kids. We're unified around Jesus. We're unified around the fact that we can't save ourselves. Our tribe can't save us, but Jesus can. And that's being prophesied and promised in this passage. So let's look at chapter 11, verses 10 through 16. So starting in verse 10, he says, And that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So again, very poetic language. Interesting little twist here, right? He was the shoot of Jesse. Remember that? Now he's the root of Jesse. This thing just got kind of crazy here, right? Like he's not just the king that's coming in the future that's going to be descended and grow out of the dead stump. He's actually the root. He was like the one that planned the whole thing, right? And this is this paradox that we would say that Jesus is not only the perfect human, but he is also God. 100% God, 100% man. As Jesus said in the Gospel of John, before Abraham was, I am. He is God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he's not just the shoot coming out of the dead stump, but he's also the root and the foundation of everything that's happening in this tribe and in this people. So he says, he will also be a signal for the peoples, and of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. What is that saying? Well, it's kind of using battle imagery here. Uh, In battle, uh, the signal would be like the banner, the gaiden, I think it's called, and the army uh, flag, right? So that would be lifted up, and everybody would be like, oh, we can go there, and that's where our leadership is, or that's where our side is, or that's where our people are. And this is really interesting here. So normally in battle... That flag, that signal, that banner is what divides the people, right? But here, Jesus' flag, his banner being lifted up, is actually what unites all the people. Isn't that crazy? And every person is going to be drawn to him, and his resting place will be glorious. He's the only true place of safety. So he's gathering every tribe. Look at verse 11. It says, And that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. So he's going to gather together his people, his lost tribes. They've been spread everywhere, right? Because the Assyrians marched through and and scattered them and sent them off in different directions. That's how often great empires would conquer people. They'd just send their people all over the place so they couldn't gather and fight their conquerors. And then later on, Babylon's going to do the same thing. So the people of God are getting scattered all over the place. And he's saying, no, they're going to be gathered back in, these different tribes of Israel, the remnant, that which is left over. They'll be gathered from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. Verse eleven, twelve. he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel. So notice this. He's not just assembling the banished or the dispersed of Israel, the tribes of Israel that have been scattered out, but all the nations as well. 
He's not just gathering the, the punished Israelites together, but he's also gathering every tribe, every people, every tongue, and every nation, every ethnicity, every race. So the question is, do you think you have a special relationship with God because of your race or because you're an American or because of your neighborhood, or, you know, I've, I've confessed, I struggle with this because I'm a Texan, right? Surely that, that gives me a special place in heaven, right? Apparently not. God disregards our tribal affiliation, and he's gathering us around the banner, the signal, which is Jesus Christ himself, the shoot and root of Jesse. So he's gathering all the peoples together, and then he starts to use this other language, which is interesting. Um, verse 13, he says, The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart. Those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. So those of you that were here the last couple of weeks in our Joseph stories, you know what this means, right? Judah was given the blessing of kingship. Ephraim was given the blessing of the firstborn. They're not going to fight anymore. They're not going to be competing tribes anymore. They're going to be reconciled. They're going to be one. He goes on in verse 14. A little more war language. They shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. Now, this is interesting because he's basically saying they're going to kill all the bad guys, right? And that's a little confusing because you're like, didn't you just say you're going to gather all the nations, and now you're saying you're going to kill all the nations? Like, which is it, God, right? And I think it's helpful when we think about Old Testament language of judgment um, to not think of it in racial terms, right? He's not saying, and by the way, God's going to kill all the people with this color of skin because they're bad because of the color of their skin, right? Think of it in religious terms. He's going to wipe out everyone who worships Satan, right? Everyone who hates Yahweh. And that's helpful when we think about the Old Testament laws about marriage as well. A lot of times people read these laws where it says Israel was supposed to be pure and separate, when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, there are all kinds of different tribes represented that have folded in by faith into the people of God. So God's not saying don't marry people because of the color of their skin. He's saying don't marry people that don't love God. That's the principle that is really fleshed out more clearly in the New Testament for us. So he's saying he's going to war against those that reject him, and he's going to gather those who accept him. Verse 15 now, more weird language. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt. So he's talking about where the Sea of Egypt comes out, the waterway there, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels. It's really strange language, right? What he's saying is he's going to fight with the water, okay? That's probably the simplest way to summarize this because listen to what he says now. And he will lead people across in sandals. So he's saying these great waterways that divide people, he'll just like blow them away. People can cruise along in sandals. What does that remind you of? That should remind you of something, right? If you've heard Bible stories before the Exodus, right? And he's actually going to tie in now with it in verse 16. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. What happened when they came up from the land of Egypt? That was the Exodus, they, they walked through the Red Sea, right? The Red Sea was parted. I grabbed a picture here. This is not an actual photograph, but an artist's representation of God dividing the waters. So in uh, biblical poetry, water is always a scary place of death, right? 
People get flooded. People are drowned. It's dangerous. There are sea monsters. There are sharks, right? And so the water is always a place of judgment. And you can think about this over all the Bible, right? There's the salvation of, of Noah in the ark through the floodwaters. Then the New Testament connects that to our baptism, right? When we are baptized, we're saying, this is a symbol of me being saved out of death. I, I pass through the waters. That's kind of a baptism symbol as well. It's washing, but it's also life through death. And what he's saying here is just like he saved people through the waters in the Exodus, this shoot and root of Jesse, this coming king that we're waiting for, is going to save people. It's going to be a new Exodus. And that's ultimately, that ultimately takes place through the death and resurrection of King Jesus. Right? He says in the Gospel of John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, there's another way you could translate way. It's road. Highway. He says, I am the highway, the truth, and the life. I'm the highway you're looking for. In the Gospel of Luke on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus is having this miraculous discussion with Moses and Elijah, it says they're talking to him about the Exodus that he's about to perform. They're like, This is really cool. You're the guy. You're going to do the new Exodus, right? This prophecy in Isaiah is going to be fulfilled through Jesus. They're saying he's about to perform this exodus. How? How does he perform the exodus? How does he save you and save me through the waters of death? How does he save us in such a way that we're now reconciled to other people that we used to be enemies with? Well, he unifies us and he saves us through his death and resurrection. So when you come to Christ, you're saying in a very upfront, forthright way, I can't save myself. My tribe can't save me. My culture can't save me. It's one of the most important cultural effects of how Christians live their lives. And so at Christmas time, I always want to be very careful about this because Christmas is the celebration of a lot of human traditions, right? Layers upon layers, right? Take some Middle Eastern traditions, and then you add to that some European traditions, and you add some American traditions. We just got tradition on top of tradition on top of tradition, and we want to make sure we're always peeling back those traditions and saying, this is really about Jesus. This is ultimately about Jesus. And you can put up a tree or not put up a tree, but you got to trust Jesus, right? And so there's kind of two sides of this. One is we all have traditions. It's impossible to live your life without traditions, a tradition is just, this is how we do it, right? If you have a family, you're like, this is how we do it. We lock our front door. We don't lock our front door, right? We eat dinner at six. We don't eat dinner. You know, like there's different ways you do your daily life. And ultimately, those are traditions. Those are cultures. But the Christian's job is to always think like a missionary and say, what, a, what am I doing that God says I have to do? And what am I doing because I just like it that way? You have to make sure you're always separating those things apart. That doesn't mean it's wrong to do all those things that you like. That's just fine. All human beings have culture and traditions. Just don't hold that over on your friends and say, this is the only way to do it. Churches and Christians are so bad about doing it, right? We say, I think I'm going to start doing this Christmas celebration. It'll help me remember Jesus. And then we turn this really scary corner when we say, and it's the only way to do it, right? And you must do it like me or you will be cast out. That's where we kind of tip over into the wrong place. So we are called on to practice traditions, create your own traditions, love Jesus in cultural ways, 
but always be able to tell the difference between thus saith the Lord and thus saith my family, right? Thus saith the Lord and this is how my tribe does things. And as we do that, then, then we're fulfilling what he's saying here. Then we're walking through the highway, which is Christ. We're saying, I'm going to get to God. I'm going to get through the floodwaters of death, not by my tradition, but by Jesus. He's the substitute. He's the one that parts the waters. So everything we should do should, should point back to him. So it's ultimately not about how I'm doing this. It's about Jesus. Jesus is my hope. He's the one that, that gathers every tribe. And the more we're able to hold our traditions lightly, the more I think that'll enable us to be unified as people from different traditions and backgrounds, right? So we can just say, yeah, this is, you know, yeah, at this church, they do this weird thing where they put up trees and, and mountains. You know, like we have these different traditions we do. They meet at this time. They sing these kind of songs. Yeah, but those are really all secondary. It's, it's ultimately about God's word, about God's savior, about Jesus himself. And so if we're going to be his manifest presence in this place or in any place, our daily life is to, to point people back to Jesus. Say, Jesus is my hope. He's the highway. He's the one that parts the waters. Better wrap up there. I'm going a little long. I'm sweating now. That means I've gotten too excited, I guess, right? Um, the Wall-E movie, it was really interesting. It was actually written by a Christian. And, you know, that doesn't mean everything in it is Christian. But it's interesting to hear him talk about his intentions with the film, right? Because I started off saying one of the primary symbols in this film is this little shoot of new life, which is the primary image in our text. And that's why I use that. But it's interesting to hear him talk about it because he said for him, the most important summary of this film was how irrational love can save us. That was his testimony as a Christian. He's like, yeah, there's like this kind of irrational love that overrides our programming. And he's like, That's what, that was what the movie was really about for me. And we see that in this gospel of a God who gives us a reason to hope. He overcomes our programming. We think we can trust ourselves, but again and again, we keep hitting these dead ends, right? We keep hitting rock bottom. We keep running out, and we can look to him who's our true hope, the shoot, but also the root of Jesse, our true king. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you for this hope that we can celebrate this time of year. Help us. Help us to trust you more. Help us to be your manifest presence in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces. Will you work through us, God? We know that this can only happen supernaturally as we, by the Spirit, hope in you. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.